0: Coming from being the man growing up, I ended up in the psychiatric ward of the hospital. And a part of me knew that I needed to be there just because all of the stuff that was going on in my head that I couldn't explain. But another part of me was just like, yo, my life is over now.
1: Welcome to What's Underneath. The podcast that will inspire you to accept the skin you're in and step into your most whole, powerful
2: self. I'm Lily Mandelbaum, and sitting next to me is my mom, Alisa Goodkind, and we are the creators of Style Like You. In our podcast, we bring you the extended
1: interviews from our video series, The What's Underneath Project, in which diverse role models strip down to open up and claim the power of the skin they're in. The first step to self-acceptance
2: is being radically honest about the things you're ashamed of. And by listening to these stories, you are tapping into the healing power of vulnerability, truth sharing, and the unshakable bravery to be yourself.
1: You are giving yourself permission to recognize that you are
2: completely beautiful and enough as you are. In honor of Mental Health Awareness Month, this week's episode of What's Underneath is made possible with the support of Spring Health. Spring Health is breaking barriers to mental health by providing employers with a comprehensive and effective solution to employee mental well-being. Follow us on Instagram at stylelikeyou and at spring.health to learn more about our partnership and how you can join in on our mental health awareness campaign. Hey,
1: everyone. Hi, everyone. We hope you're all doing well. We are sadly uh, ending our Black Voices series, but happily and excited to be starting a new series this month around Mental Health Awareness Month that we're doing um, with the support of a company called Spring Health, which we are really excited to be partnering with because Spring Health is all about making mental health available to people in their workplaces and it's something that we feel very strongly about and 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 are really excited to be in collaboration with them because there is nothing more important than our mental health and most of our videos address mental health in in one way or another because our mental health is all about who we feel we are on the inside as opposed to relying on the expectations of, of who we're supposed to be on the outside and that's you know just a really fundamental part of mental health.
2: Yeah so over the next month the four what's underneath storytellers that we'll be featuring have you know a particularly potent mental health. Story to share, whether it's about depression, suicide, bipolar disorder, physical ra- a physical health health issue or physical condition. So all of the stories we'll be featuring this month, in one way or another, dive into really radically honest, like brave accounts of people sharing their mental health journeys and destigmatizing mental health and showing that actually how when you're honest about your struggle and you release the shame around your mental health struggle or journey that it actually can become the springboard to your your most empowered self and when you don't let the the actual shame of it kind of control you you can actually begin the healing process from there. We're really excited because with Spring Health our partner for this on this mental health series of episodes this month we're also going to be working with them on a whole mental health awareness campaign on our social media channels. Um, So please make sure to follow us along on Instagram at style like you, where we're going to be creating opportunities for you to join in on the mental health storytelling by sharing your mental health journeys on social media um, and also participating with us, hopefully, in an event that we're going to be hosting in June, uh, a What's Underneath Collective Therapy virtual Summit. Of sorts, uh, where we'll be facilitating live "What's Underneath" interviews, featuring one of you or two of, or a couple of your stories, and also creating opportunities for you to connect with the Style Like You community at large and share in on your own "What's Underneath" uh, experience with one another. So we're stay tuned for more details on that. So now, Mom, do you want to explain this week's storyteller? So
1: this week, this week, um, we're featuring Renshawn Miller, who was. Uh, the all-Star athlete and student in his growing up in in a small town in the south. His story is working really hard in his life to live up to these very high expectations of his community and his family to achieve in a very you know in a very to excel and to achieve and a kind of unveiling of you know of underlying, issues that came about when he um, suffered an injury when he first went to college uh, and wasn't able to play sports. Um, It led to a diagnosis of bipolar um, disorder and eventually to three suicide attempts. But those, those attempts and his diagnosis really just served to be vehicles along his journey towards finding his purpose and coming into his own from from an internal place and and from a place of where he felt he truly belonged, which is in becoming a therapist um, and especially uh, a therapist in his own black community and serving his community in in terms of mental health and in terms of, of therapy and in a way that, they have not been in the past, um, you know. That it's been a very white supremacist industry, and he is now, you know, very deeply committed to revolutionizing that and 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 creating a much more just and equal mental health system for his black community. So his story is incredibly touching and moving. Um, also, in terms of the discovery of how the you know his expression of his feelings being able to be sad being able to be angry being able to be all of the different things that we feel in life um were very much what helped him to come back from from rock bottom and 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 then and then to bring that awareness of the importance of expressing your feelings to other men in the black community and and to his community at large
2: yeah so yeah Renchon's story i think really embodies you know, style like use message overall, which is just that when we release our shame and are radically honest, that's the like most important step to acceptance and of of oneself. And I think that's really what happened to Ranjan in his story. He he was resisting his diagnosis, he was resisting what he was experiencing and the depths of the darkness that he was experiencing. Um, because of shame and not wanting to appear weak and he wasn't sharing any of what he was going through with anyone around him and it wasn't until he started to release that shame and share his experiences with friends that he realized not only did it make him feel so much more connected to people around him but it actually started to act like relieve the, the, the actual pain that he was in and now he views his feelings and his struggles not as a weakness but as his strength and it's propelled him to his purpose of being a therapist and helping others find that same freedom and liberation that he has found. So without further ado, we hope you enjoy this episode
1: and we'd love to hear from you always about um, your experience with the podcast and how much, you know, what, whether, you know, what your feelings are about Renshawn, what your feelings are about any of our, our stories. And we, we really look forward to connecting to you personally. You can always reach out to us on Instagram um, as a way to to speak to us. And, and we look forward to hearing from you and look forward to actually seeing you and connecting with you in the coming month around um, the initiatives that we're doing where you'll be able to share your story and then ultimately um, in the uh, summit the mental health awareness, what's underneath Summit that we're having um, along with Spring Health in June. Hope you enjoy. Can you begin by just telling us how you feel right now?
0: Oh, man. Um, Nervous, anxious a little bit, um, just from not knowing how deep I'm going to go.
1: Can you talk about what your style says about you?
0: I would say my style is really based off of my upbringing, but then also comfort for me, just being true to myself. I grew up on, on hip hop. I was a sneakerhead growing up. Uh, jerseys, even if my parents didn't have the money to do so, I would make the best of what I had. Honestly, I always wanted grills as a child, uh, but I recently got these. So as you get, you know, as you become an adult, you can make your own decisions on certain things. Uh, but then also growing up, my grandmother had teeth. And that was her way of expressing herself. And my mom wouldn't, she wouldn't let me do it. So I was like, it's a form of expression. And, and a way to just showcase my difference. But then also just show solidarity within our community. This is some things that we do.
2: Can you talk about some of the assumptions that people make about you based on your appearance or how you look?
0: If someone see me dressed like this, um, you know, especially where my hair is, I have grills in, or they may make, a, make an assumption that I'm a thug. So if I'm going into more so a predominantly white town, I love to wear hoodies, but I'm not going to wear a hoodie where I might have it on my head all the time. I make sure that I don't put my hands in my pockets. I'm not wearing a black mask, based over how I dress, how I talk, uh, any type of mannerisms that person is, can judge me. And then, unfortunately, by me being a black male, I could be killed for that.
1: Have you had any incidents?
0: Yeah. I mean, I grew up in the South. I'm, I'm from North Carolina, from rural North Carolina. So I'm, I've seen instances where, you know, someone judge you just, just off the color of your skin. I mean, honestly, I, I've seen KKK members hold rallies uh, down Main Street as, as recent as two, three years ago. So, no, I'm very conscious of that. And so um, I've been in instances where I've been pulled over by the police and they, they had no real reason to search my car, but they still do it um, because I was in a certain neighborhood.
1: How does that make you feel?
0: It makes you look at this country and understanding that we're seen as less than people. If the majority consider me less than a person, who am I? I look back on my history with my family and, you know, our ancestors and understanding that, yo, we were very resilient people and we have put up with a lot um, and continue to push forward. It's a sense of hope. One of the blessings for me is understanding that growing up as a black male, I always had to adapt. So when I'm in a space where I feel like I I don't necessarily belong, I'll find a way to belong or find some some way to connect with people So that's what allows me to also, I feel like being an effective therapist, because I find ways to connect with people, because I've been going through this training all of my life. You have to want to do that. You have to have the passion and desire to connect with someone that's different than you. And and when you possess that, it opens up a new world for you.
1: Can you talk about what's been your biggest struggle?
0: Growing up. You know, I was a a smart kid, and I played sports. So people will always tell you, oh, you should go be a doctor, or you should be a lawyer, or you should do these things. It wasn't based off of what I like to do. It was, oh, because you're able to do this, you need to do this. But then also just being a man, you know, that comes with its own social norms that you feel like you have to live up to. Uh, you know, you always have to be strong. You always have to be the provider. You always can't show any type of emotions, uh, any of those things. You can't cry. You know, we, we tell our boys early on in life, like, oh, boys don't cry, certain things like that. So you start to suppress a lot of stuff, but then you don't realize how that impacts you and how that uh, influences you to the point of, you know, you're hurting inside, but then also that leads to you hurting other people.
1: What was it like for you to have to suppress your feelings and basically the whole of your humanity in order to appear strong? It
0: led to the point of uh, just always trying to make sure that I pleased other people. Everybody looked at me like, oh, Sean is going to make it. He's going to be the one that you know goes off and makes all of this money. He's going to come back to the community and do all of these great things, no matter how much I didn't want to do something or no matter how much something hurt, I still did it. That was even playing sports, uh, even with school. What I realized is that that suppression made me find other methods to try to cope with those things. But then eventually, you know, it's gonna come out. I had serious anger problem and, and I would fight. But I would try to suppress that as long, but when I exploded, I exploded. And, and I would see red. And, uh, but then also when it, became, when, it, when it was coming down to me being sad, I was always trying to suppress that. I never wanted to show any tears or emotions. Even going into uh, my college years, I was playing football and running track in college, um, but I suffered a knee injury and that sidelined me. And after surgery, I was stuck in my dorm room. During that time, for one, I didn't want to let anybody know that I was struggling with pain. And then it was, it was more so of the pain of losing my identity. Because at this particular point, I had played sports all of my life. Like I said, I was, I was the top dog where I came from. But then I got to college, I was a walk-on. So you, you're the lowest of the low. But then in addition to that, you know, I, I graduated from high school near the top of my class. And I went to, to college on an academic scholarship. Everybody looked at me like, oh, Sean is going to make it. He's going to be the one that, you know, goes off and makes all of this money. He's going to come back to the community and do all of these great things. But then I almost fell out of school my first year. So I almost fell in, out of school, and then now I'm not playing sports, so my identity was gone. And so suppressing those emotions and feelings and not getting those things out, um, it led to a sleepless nights. I went through a period where I didn't sleep for about two weeks. So you can imagine when, when you're not sleeping, you know, you don't sleep for one day, like your next day is shot. <laughs> like you, you're antsy, you, you, you're anxious, you don't want to be bothered with people, all of those things. And uh, so imagine going a full two weeks and can't rest. Uh, during that time period, that's when like, my delusions started and hallucinations, I started to hear voices at that particular time. The voices about that I shouldn't be here. I'm a failure. I'm worthless and you know, all of these particular negative thoughts. One of the things is when you're in college, you can hide a lot of stuff from your parents. <laughs> and so I was able to hide the fact that I was almost, get, get, get almost about to get kicked out of school. So if I hide this stuff, how do I figure out a way to turn it around before they find out? Because I don't want to disappoint them. All of the work and stuff that they put into me, the community, everything that they put, like. I don't want to let them down. I get to a period where I didn't, I wasn't eating. I lost about 25 pounds over a matter of like, it was a matter of about six to seven weeks. I wasn't showering. I didn't care. Uh, I would just sit in my room.
2: Would you classify that as like depression?
0: In hindsight, yes. But at that particular moment, I didn't know what depression was. I was, a, I was a 19, 20-year-old college kid from rural North Carolina. We can talk about mental health. We do talk about depression. That's, that's nothing black people deal with. But well, one of the things for me, uh, so I'm my only child, so I had to talk to my mom. My mom, she would call me every day and I always ask, you know, are you all right, baby? Are you OK? So I had to talk to her. Uh, but then, also during that time, I was I was just trying to put on a facade and, and you know tell her that I'm I'm good, you know everything's going great, school is going great, the healing process is great, you know all of those things. But uh, she could tell just something was different in my voice, and she was just like, well, I, I hear what you're saying, but I don't believe you. I don't believe what you're saying. Uh, I need to lay eyes on you, and I need to really uh, see what's going on with you. Um, that was one of the defining moments in just uh, me addressing what I had going on in that particular moment because she sent my cousin in to come, come check in on me. So My cousin, uh, Jovita, she uh, went to a neighboring college. It was, about, it was probably about 10 miles down the road. This cousin is more like a sister than me. We are only five months apart. And uh, so we grew up together like, like siblings. And so when she came in, uh, she told my cousin to come check in. My cousin came to my dorm room, and when she saw me, she just started crying. Just for the simple fact that I wasn't the Sean that she grew up with. And she could just see it on my, on my face. She could see that I lost so much weight. Um, she could see that you know, my hair was all over the place, and I didn't smell good, and you know, all of those things. So she called my mom, and my mom was like, get him out of there. For me, I was, I was relieved. Because I was like, yes, finally, somebody's here to save me. But I also, I don't have to tell them exactly what's going on. Because I was still scared. Because honestly, I didn't know what was going on. And she's taking me to her apartment. She's asking me what's wrong, what's wrong, what's wrong. I was like, nothing, I'm good, I'm good. Even after all of this stuff that's going on in my head, I'm still, I'm still trying to, you know, put on this facade, not show any type of weakness, and not, you know, put on that something is wrong. When we were, we were sitting there, you know, she's taking me to her apartment, a couple hours later, my my, my family shows up and they come, they come deep. <laughs> it, uh, like it wasn't just my mom, it wasn't just my dad, it's like my aunts, uncles and all of them. They they came, they showed up and then they when they got there, they kept asking me, you know all the questions, it was like, you know, what's, what's wrong with you? What's good? I was like, no, I'm fine. It was like, well, we can literally see that you're not fine. Like, we can tell that something is wrong. And, but it was like, if you're not going to talk to us, we're going to take you somewhere to, so you can get help. And my immediate thought was, you know, I don't like using this word, but my immediate thought at that particular moment was Crazy House. I was like they can tell something is wrong with me they're going to take me to the hospital and they're going to put me in the crazy house. That's not where I want to go. So I started panicking. And at this particular moment I'm I'm fighting them the entire way. They had to strap me in the car, they had to, you know, once they got me to the hospital, they had to make me get out of the car and I'm fighting the entire time. But also during that time I'm weak cuz I hadn't been eating. So I'm, I'm, even though I'm trying to fight off, I'm, I'm not, you know, that successful because my uncles and so they were bigger than me and they were able to, like, really, you know, all right, we're going to take control of this situation and we're going to take you where you need to go. Got into the hospital. Terror really set in because at this point it's real. But When I initially got to the hospital, I ended up punching a nurse. Cause I'm I'm just fighting not to go in. So they restrained me and they sedated me. When I finally woke up and realized where I was, I was in a um, I was in restraints, in a straitjacket, but then also I was in a, I was in a padded room. I was like, how the hell did I get here? Coming from being the man growing up and even what the man in college. I ended up in a psychiatric ward of a hospital, and a part of me knew that I needed to be there just because all of the stuff that was going on in my head that I couldn't explain. But another part of me was just like, "Yo, my life is over now. Ain't you no know, coming back from this." So even when I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, I'm here in this room. Restraint. I can look through a small glass. I can see my fam. They're crying because they don't the want to put me there, but they also know I needed to be there. And they didn't know any, they didn't know what else to do. So as they hurt, I'm hurt because I know what's going through their minds. Then also, I can't tell them how to help them. Because I can't put what I'm going through into words. I, like, I was never given these tools growing up. I was never able to identify the various you know, emotions that we feel as people. As a young black boy, I was always taught it was only acceptable to be anger and happiness. It's the only thing that was, that was acceptable. If I display anger, they'd be like, "All right, cool. He fought. Let's put him on the football team." You, you just, you, you know, you're able to express that there. You can hit people. I'm happy. All right, you know, that's fine because that falls in line with the status quo. You ain't causing no disruption when you're happy. But if I'm sad, I'll suck that up. No. What you sad about? You ain't got nothing to be sad for. But then once I was in there, I was terrified, not just for the fact that I was in there, but then also the fact that, like, oh, nobody in there looked like me. None of the doctors, none of the nurses, any of those. Like, so I'm I'm on defense already. I'm not, I don't trust people. I mean, because if you look at the history, uh, you know, my people have been tested on, and you know, we, we've been, like I said, considered as animals, so we, we get the experimental treatment. So I, I know my history, so like, nah, I don't trust y'all. We, it's already hard enough to get a black man to go to the doctor already, as it is. <laughs> like, cause my dad and my granddad, like, did my uncles, like, it's tough to get de- them to go to, the, go to the doctor. You know, if you go to the doctor, it means something is wrong, it means something is weak about you. That means that you're not able to perform it to your best uh, capabilities. So I think all of those things are underlying factors. So uh, you talked about going to uh, a doctor for physical ailments. Definitely not going to no doctor for no uh, you know, mental health treatment. So that's, that's way you know, out the window. So And I'm in there, and I'm like, nobody in there looks like me. So when they're constantly asking me questions, I held, on, I held my tongue for the longest. It's like, I'm not telling you what's going on even if I found the words as far as how to tell you what what is going on with me, I don't trust you enough to give you that information. Either you go take it and use it against me, or you go keep me in here for longer than, than I want to be in. So no, I'm not talking. I would rather be in here in restraints than talk to you. But you know, honestly, you're in restraints long enough, and you realize that you, not getting out until you start talking, you start to break. I got tired of trying to hold up that facade. But then also, I got tired of seeing my family being crushed by them not knowing what's going on with me. So when I did start to talk, like the floodgates opened, and I just let it all out. Um, I received a diagnosis of bipolar 1 disorder with psychotic features. Bipolar disorder is uh, associated with mood swings. But a lot of times, people feel like the mood swings are very quick and they happen, you know, you know one second I'm this way, the next second I'm that. No, that's not it. Um, I have these high highs, my manic phases. Uh, I feel like Superman. I feel like, you know, I can't be touched. I, I you know, I'm trying to do any and everything at the same time. Um, my thoughts are racing. And uh, I just feel like, you know, invincible. I've been in a, a manic phase, maybe, the longest is about two weeks. But then there's the opposite end of this spectrum where I can barely get out of the bed. And if that's the depression phase. And so with that, you know, that's, I'm, I'm not eating. Um, I, I, if I'm, either I'm not sleeping or I'm sleeping too much. One or two, it really all depends. You know, it all looks different in different phases. Uh, you know, I, I have no interest in the things that I'm normally interested in. Uh, but then also with that, I withdraw from people. I, I don't want to be bothered. Just because I just don't see the worst. Um, and so, you know, when, when the doctor gave me that diagnosis, they, they ran through these things, but they don't really teach you. Uh, and, and especially in inpatient, they, they're trying to, you know, get you stable, get you out. Um, and so then, you know, once I received that diagnosis, and, it, and, it, and it, honestly, it coming from a white man, I was like, all right, I hear you. I just wanna go home. I don't care what you're saying. <laughs> I, I'm, not, I'm not listening to you. So I just wanna go home. Um, it was like, all right, I, was, I, I got to the point where I was stable enough to be discharged from the hospital, um, but then at that particular moment, that's when a major decision had to be made uh, by my family well, me and my family, but it was more so my family, especially my mom, it was either I go back home, because I couldn't go back to school, because that was one of my triggers, and I wasn't in the mental shape to actually go back to school and perform, and I, w- I was almost about to flunk out anyway, so like there was no need for me to go there. It was either me go home, or my uncle made a suggestion for me to come live with him in Charlotte, and I leaned more to the fact of going to Charlotte because no one knew me there. I can go hide out. I can go, you know, work on myself, or I can, you know, I'm just getting out of the hospital. If I go home, everybody's gonna be like, yo, Sean, why you home? You supposed to be, you know, you're supposed to be at school. Yeah, you supposed. To... If I go home, I have to face that disappointment or me disappointing them. And then that's also another reality where my identity is gone. I go to Charlotte. I don't have to face any of that, not at that particular moment. So, I mean, I honestly you know, don't know why my mom did it, but she allowed me to go stay with her brother. And, um, and that was another game changer for me because when I was able to get to Charlotte, I was able to um, start to work on myself. And I was introduced to this therapist, Dr. Kendall Jasper. That was a significant impact on me because of the fact that he was a black man. And and you know, as it's not a lot of black male therapists out there. Uh, so I was blessed in that regard and and, you know being able to connect with him and then connect with him so fast. So when when I when I first went into his office, uh, it was a trip because I I didn't I didn't believe he was a doctor. (laughs) Because like again, he was dressed like I was dressed. He had on t-shirt, basketball shorts, that's from Jordan. And we are trained in society that doctors are supposed to look a certain type of way. And so I, I questioned him. I was like, are you sure you're a doctor? And he was like, yeah, let, let, let's kick it. Let's talk. He greeted me just like I would greet anybody else in the street. He dapped me up. You know, we talked about sports. We talked about clothes. We, like, we were able to build that connection very fast just because of the comfort level by seeing somebody that looks like me. And so then, you know, talking with him, I was able to unpack a lot of stuff that was going on with me. But then also, he, um, I trusted him enough to take his recommendation about seeing a psychiatrist. And so what a lot of people don't realize is psychologists, they, uh, they don't prescribe medications. They do more so of the testing and they do more so of the counseling. He referred me to a psychiatrist to actually get on medication uh, to help with what I had going on. And so that made me comfortable with, you know, you know, talking to the psychiatrist, but getting the medication. But when I got it under control, I was under, I was under the, the misconception that I was cured. So I go back to school and I was like, all right, I'm cured. No one, so none of my friends knew that I was in the hospital. No one knew I was in Charlotte, cause I turned my phone off so nobody, I, I didn't talk to anybody. And so, so when I get back to school, I was like, I'm cured. I don't need no meds anymore. I don't need therapy anymore. I'm gonna get back into the same old thing that I used to do. Get back to school. And symptoms ended up coming back. Voices started to get louder. Stressed, you know, stress was, was taking over. Um, but then, also with it, I was working a full time job in school full time. Um, and then, you know, I'm just trying to find ways to cope. But then, also, I'm still trying to live up to this facade as far as now Rashawn is back. So, so in high school, I, back home, I'm called Sean. When I got to college, it, it becomes Rashawn. So, Rashawn is here. Rashawn was the life of the party, Rashawn was you know, the man, Rashawn was the cool dude, Rashawn was all of these, Rashawn was the frat boy, all of this, all of this stuff, right? Former athlete, at that time I stopped playing sports too, but I still, I was, I was athletic. And, and so when I get back to school, I was like, I'm still trying to live up to all of these expectations and, and get back into the groove of things, but then also trying to hide all of the stuff that I had been through. And when the stuff starts to come back, I was like, the ignorance in me, instead of me going back to what actually helped, I started to pick up a bottle. I was going through a, a fifth of tequila every other day. I'm, I'm crying at night, and that's not, that's not what a man does. Uh, I'm, I'm not living up to my expectations, so like, what, what is your actual worth? Why are you even here? No one would miss you, so you might as well not even be here. When you're hearing the voices, you you try to combat them because you try to find some positive. But like, it's like, it's like arguing with someone. And then when you try to argue, you just get up and leave the room or you be like, yo, I don't want to talk to you no more. Can't get away from this. It goes with me everywhere I go.
2: How is that impacting your ability to like do school and have friends and like live your life?
0: The interesting part about that is like, I really succeeded. And that's what made it dangerous because even though I was experiencing emotional turmoil, I had my best grades during that time. Uh, I was, and, and again, like I said, I, w- I was making money. I was working full time. Um, social life was, you know, was good. And even with me drinking a lot, nobody in, in college, you know, people are not going to check you on drinking because that's something that is a part of the culture. But um, then also, with that, I had the ability to purchase my own liquor, but then also buy my friend's liquor so like if I, if I'm supplying you like who who gonna complain uh and we and we we're having fun and it wasn't impacting my life to the point where i'm spiraling that they could see i'm gonna just fight through it, and hopefully it'll it'll get better and so uh you know, hopefully one day I'll wake up and everything is back to when I felt like I was killed. Still in my head, I was like, yo, you still have to meet this expectation of graduating with the class of 2009. You gotta graduate with your class. You have to, college is four years, you gotta be in and out. You have to meet this expectation because that's what everybody is putting on you. And with that determination, it, it came to the point of like, I, I did it. I walked with my class. I took 18 and 21 hours each each semester. And but still, and still holding down a full time job, so I'm still succeeding. While these voices are still going on in my head, all of this takes a turn, though you know, when the voices get to the point where I can't stop them, and they, they're way too loud. When they got to that point, you know, I, I I I attempted suicide three times. So the first two times I tried to overdose on pills. And then uh, the last time I put a gun in my head and pulled the trigger and it jammed on me. One time I was, I was living by myself and, um, and then I tried to o- o- overdose on pills. The, la- um, the second time I, tried, I attempted to overdose, I was living with my uncle at that particular time. And then uh, one of my good friends, uh Mike, he found me, um, passed out on the bed. And then uh, the last time I was living in Charlotte too, I was, I was living alone at that particular moment. And I, I will say that, especially that last time, it was. That was the lowest moment of my life, and I say that that was the lowest moment because, as we, you know, some people have this perception about suicide that it's selfish or it's, you know, you're weak because you take the easy way out. I don't. I don't see trying to kill yourself as easy. Especially at that particular point where I had done fail two times. And then now uh, this, this final time, I was like, yo, all right, this, this, yo, you got to get this right. And so when when I failed that last time, I was like, damn, I can't do shit right. You can't you fucking kill yourself right? What the fuck is wrong with you? So all I could do is just sit and cry. It wasn't. My, it wasn't even a point about, you know, being selfish. It was more so. I, I thought about, you know, my family. I was like, if I'm no longer here, they ain't gotta worry about me. They can move on with their life. They can, you know, do whatever. The people that I hurt, you know, I'm no longer here anymore. So that's done. And then on top of that, like, I was in so much emotional turmoil. Now I can stop this. I can can deal with physical pain. I done had multiple surgeries, knees, ankles, all of this stuff, biceps, all of that. You know, this shit in here, though, I can't get away from. It's a whole nother level.
1: We hope you're enjoying this episode so far. We wanted to take a moment to remind you that if you're moved by what you're hearing, you can watch the video version of this interview on our YouTube channel and learn more about how you can join in our Mental Health Awareness Campaign with Spring Health by following us on Instagram at stylelikeyou and at spring.health.
2: Now back to this episode. Was that like a, a turning point for you in your life?
0: I had to just go back and think about just the the things that went on in my life. And think about the last time that I felt good. And for me, it was actually going back to therapy and and getting back on meds and all of those things. those, Those things that I needed to really address within myself to be able to have my you know, internal thoughts match the success that people thought I was I was exhibiting. Um, so started back therapy, started back medication, um, and you know with this I, I went into it this time with a different with a different um goal. It wasn't just a pack though, I wanted a quick fix and I wanted just just to stop, but then also I wanted to learn more about more about who I was as a person, but then also really being able to manage my symptoms that I was experiencing. So it's and then and honestly it came down to a realization that I'm gonna be dealing with this shit the rest of my life. I ended up reaching out to my old therapist, but I didn't tell them what was going on. I I reached out to Kendall but I didn't tell him exactly everything that was going on because that I was still ashamed. Um, about that, I just said I needed help. And at this particular moment, it, you know, I, I wanted to know when could I get on the schedule, when can we talk, and when can we start the process back up because I wasn't feeling the best. And so even then, outside of that, I still didn't trust anyone else with that information because even the first, the first two attempts outside of my homeboy that found me. I didn't tell anybody. From from initial diagnosis to the final suicide attempt, uh, it was a seven year period. Why I didn't tell people what was going on in my life. I hid that from people. We we don't talk about mental health, and. You know, how would you, how would I share with some of my friends that, you know, I hear voices or I tried to kill myself um, and they, they, they hold me up here into disregard, And I didn't want to show that weakness to them. Because I, I in a way, I know everything that I've been through, but I still have to protect myself.
1: Do you still consider that to be a weakness? No.
0: Definitely not. And that shift came when I realized that other people deal with some of the same things. They, they deal with it in silence. I started to pick up on things with uh, friends and family that was around me. Um, I had a friend that would um, smoke a lot. He's like, man, I just needed to get through the day. You know, this, this is something, this is the way I cope. So, yeah, it ain't hurt nobody, but I can tell that you are hurt. So, I was like, yo, bro, what's going on? Ah, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. So, like, right. like, let me tell you something. I was like, when I left school, I left school because I was in the psychiatric ward. And I tried to kill myself three times. His, his initial response was just like, "Yo, bro, why you ain't tell me?" "Say, yo, we boys, why you tell me?" And when I look at him, I could be like, "Oh no, I thought you would look at me, dude." They say, I appreciate you sharing with me because I've been dealing with this, 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 and this. So, yo, I knew you were dealing with something. I've been going through the same thing. So there's a reason why you're smoking. What is it? So after we had that conversation, you know, I even helped them, you know, as far as trying to find help and you know, talking to someone. And, and just continuing to continuing to support one another and have real conversations. And that that was a spark that that led to everything that I do today. But it was a spark for me to not only share my journey, but then also figure out ways to help other people. Knowing who we are as black people, as black men, we don't have those spaces. And I wanted to make a difference, you know, I saw a gap in my community. That's what led me to go get my master's degree in in counseling. And then even then, while I'm in counseling, when I'm getting my master's degree and I'm studying, all of these things, these different techniques and, you know, the DSM and all of that stuff. I'm looking at it like, yo, this shit ain't gonna work with my people. (laughs) Not if you gonna work with the population I intend to work with. And that's my goal, to work with the the population that looks like me. So I I would challenge, you know, challenge my, 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 my professors and stuff. I'm like, yo, well, how do you translate this into me going into a home, where it's six kids running around, mom is a single parent. I can't wait on my clients to come to my office all the time. They may not even have a car. Or I can't wait on, you know, for them to see mental health as a necessity. Because they try to figure out what they gonna eat tonight. How do you, as a therapist, how do you work with that? They, they couldn't me no answers.
2: So it's like, all right, cool,
0: Create my own way.
2: So at that point and during those eight or nine months, did you, did you actually accept the diagnosis?
0: Yeah, I, I started to accept it. And then also, not even just accept it, but learn more. Do my own research. What depression may look like for a Black man. It's, it may look different than what it what is portrayed in in certain you know uh, media or anything else or even in a book. Uh, my depression, it may look like me overworking, or it may look like me uh, expressing anger. Man, I mean, I'm, I'm just like legit depressed. Uh, it may look like me. Uh, Sometimes it it could be me uh, going to the gym too much or, you know, finding other ways that are coping. It could be me using alcohol or any other type of drugs or hypersexuality and all of those other things. Like it could be those things. So it looks different. So I had to, you know, understand that within myself. And granted, I'm I'm still learning. I'm still learning about a lot of stuff about myself, even over the last couple of weeks, just learning. Um, but being able to embrace that journey um, comes along with it. And then when you say, you know, I accepted the, the diagnosis of bipolar disorder, it was more so accepting the fact that that's only a piece of me.
2: What do you do now to like maintain as much equilibrium as you can and, and I guess balance the swings? And, and do, you, do you even still have the swings now?
0: Oh man, that's a great question. I would say, um, finding, uh, so, uh, one of the main things for me was, um, journaling. Journaling was a big part of my recovery process. And I say that because it allowed me to get thoughts out of my head, but then also allowed me to do research on myself. Um, when I say research on myself like I develop my own journal whereas I am um, I'm, I'm taking note of everything that's going on anything that I consume whether that be the people that I talk to the music that I listen to the food that I eat what I watch on TV all of that stuff all of that stuff plays a role into my mental health but I had to be very intentional about understanding that and then understanding who and what was a good thing for my mental health in certain capacities. Um, so that was one of the things that helped me develop my routine, as far as understanding my triggers, understanding my protective factors, understanding things that could bring me out of a hole, or things that I can pick up on whereas right before i go into this hole i can pick up on them and not go into it Boundaries within myself and with others um but i would not just limited to just boundaries it's it's just you really have to learn yourself um and then again and when you're learning yourself it's not just solely based off of what other people think you should be and do Oh, you know, oh, you're sad. Well, you know, just go take a walk. You'll be all right. It may not work for everybody. You got to find your own, your own path and your own lane as as it is healthy, <laughs> healthy path. And lane. I must definitely say that. Because one time my lane was alcohol because I thought that was it, but no, that wasn't it. So you have to find those things where um, you can really be able to Thrive and not just survive. I would say um, (laughs) one of the things I I, uh, understand is my house gets messy. It's a representation of my brain, and and if everything is scattered around my house, I'm scattered, and I'm not functioning to the the way I need to function. So I need to clean. I need to declutter. I need to meditate more. I need to sit down and chill and get back grounded. I'm also keeping track of my sleep patterns and you know understand if I'm not sleeping enough uh, or I'm sleeping too much, I'm gonna understand something is wrong um, with that. So like me understanding those, those things in my life have, have been a game changer I don't have these huge swings, but then also, I'm, like I said, I'm still in therapy and all of that. I still do all of those particular things that I need to do. Develop my routine, and my morning routine, whether in my in the morning I'm, I'm journaling, I'm meditating, I'm working out, making sure. Those are non-negotiables for me.
2: When do you feel the most vulnerable?
0: Hmm. I would say I feel the most vulnerable right after I meditate because then I'm able to sort through my own thoughts and and really tap into something greater than me. But when I do that, I'm able to also recognize whether that be my inadequacies or my things I need to work on, sit down and be honest with myself. And also, I understand within myself that Certain things I compartmentalize. There are different types of vulnerabilities with me. That could be me being vulnerable about bipolar disorder or or suicide attempts and all of those things. Or it could be me being vulnerable about relationships or sexuality or any of those things. Or it could be me being vulnerable about my identity. Um, There are different levels of vulnerability that comes with having different people in your life for that. As far as identity, I have a good friend, Dorian, that I'm able to have conversations with him. And we understand that our identity, our identity as males, our identity as black males, then also our identity as successful black men. Successful black men coming from North Carolina, well, we've seen things where it's like, you know, you, we shouldn't have made it. But then once you do make it, what do you do to make sure the next person makes it? So being able to, you know, have those, those conversations and be vulnerable in a sense on that aspect is,
1: you know, is a blessing. That's such a beautiful thing that you just said, because you were defining yourself as successful. When success for you was once being the big football star, right,
0: right. Success for me now. Um, <laughs> You've been you shared it uh, with my business partner. Like um, having one of my clients reach out to me it was just like, yo, I'm just checking in with you. See how you doing? I'm good. I just want to make sure you good. You helped me get to this particular point.
2: When do you feel the most handsome or beautiful or whatever you want to call it?
0: <laughs> I really started to like the fact that, you know, I got my, i my hair out now. So, like, and, and I think the symbolism of that goes beyond just, um, just the, the, however it looks right now. It goes down to the point that it's, 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 this is how it naturally grows out of my head, because even when I was young, you know, it was like, oh, boy, you need a haircut, your head it, You know, so, like, think about how that, how that makes you feel, you know, your self-image about something that naturally grows out of your head. Where well, you have to keep it cut cl- close because you don't want someone to say, you know, you got, you got a knotted of or you got a B2B's on your head, like, you know, you need to brush it or this, then, and third. So, like, I think that's a newfound beauty within myself is being able to embrace my hair the way it is and, and not be ashamed of it or not feel like it's, um, it's an asshole. Uh because it may not be, you know, straight or it you know, it may draw up or you know, any hey, of those things. So I think the thing that's that's fairly new this this year along.
2: What's your what's your greatest hope?
0: We're able to get the resources needed to the communities that need it when it comes down to mental health. And it's not just you know, making sure they have therapists. Because therapists is not the see-all be-all. It's more so of training our people in our communities to be able to address their emotions and deal with their emotions as they encounter them.
1: Why in your body? Why in your journey? Why in your skin? Why is it a good place to be?
0: It is the Power that's been bestowed upon me to learn more about who I am as a person, but then also learn about how I can impact others to the end, to the point where they feel empowered to be themselves. I think it's important for me to be in this position to be able to share that, be authentic, so that. Um, authenticity is like, there's layers to it. A lot of layers. And not meaning that you have to show with everybody, but you know, it's important to find people that you can share it with. Because also with this, as you do that internal work, it spills over into the community. And community is everything. It's going to take all of us. It's going to, you said it takes a village to raise a child. It's going to take a village to conquer anything that we are faced with right now, not just raising our children. So I understand my role in my village. I understand my lane. That's why it's important for me to stay in that particular lane and empower others to get in their lanes beside me. And we can make significant change. I display resilience, yes. So have my ancestors, so so have so many people. But when do we, you know, turn the corner and, and like I said, stop, stop surviving and start thriving? It's time to live.
1: We hope you were inspired by this episode. Until next week, that's it from me, Alisa. And me, Lily. If you were touched by this story, please take a moment to share this episode with any friends or family who could benefit from understanding that they are enough as they are.
2: And if you agree that facades separate us and being radically honest brings us together, please help spread the movement for radical self-acceptance by subscribing to, rating, and reviewing this podcast.
1: Thank you again to Spring Health for
2: supporting us in our mental health episodes of What's Underneath. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at stylelikeyou and at spring.health for more details on how you can be involved in sharing your story as part of our mental health awareness campaign and support one another in feeling less alone in our struggles. We can't skip ahead to a happy ending
1: or live inside a photoshopped image or an Instagram filter. There's no finding oneself when glossing over the truth.